John wants you to know that Jesus is life. He began his letter right at the beginning in verse 2 with these powerful words. He said, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is reflecting on the way that he knew Jesus on earth. He was discipled by him. He touched him. He'd seen him. He knew that true flourishing life was in Jesus. Jesus is life. But life with Jesus can be hard. In fact, Jesus himself, he never promised that our problems would go away when we followed him. And he told us in John's gospel, the gospel John recorded about the life of Jesus. He tells us there in John 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, Jesus is life, but life with Jesus can be hard. Now, personally, I love Jesus. There's nothing in my life that I value more and treasure more deeply than my relationship with Christ. I love him, but it's still easy to be discouraged. Sometimes the weight of my own sin, it just feels oppressive, like this giant burden on my, my shoulders. I get weighed down by it. Sometimes I feel like God is distant and it's difficult to know where he is and, and how he's living and acting in my life. Sometimes I struggle to believe that God is actually a God who is at work in my life, who's working through me for his glory and for the good of others. But you know what helps? What helps is those moments when someone comes alongside of me and they put their hand on my shoulder and they speak simple truths from the Bible directly to me. They say things like this. They say, Brant, God loves you. Brant, God forgives you. Brant, God is at work in you. Brant, God delights in you. God is with you and he is for you. And see, in this letter, John has been correcting the church and he's been pointing the way towards true flourishing life in Jesus and warning about all these alternate false ways of life that the church was encountering. And at times, as he's spoken these words of corrections, it's meant that there have been some hard words, some difficult things that he's called us to. He's called us to repent, to confess. He's called us to live in the same way that Jesus himself lived. That's a high and lofty calling. And if all we had from John in the Bible were these high and lofty calls to obedience, I think we'd just be crushed under the load and the weight of them. But it's not all we have. See, the true motivation for obedience and growth in life with God is his grace. It's his mercy. It's his love that is for us first. See, John knows in this text that we're going to look at this morning that we need encouragement. 
If we're going to grow, we need encouragement. And John, the old pastor, the old disciple of Jesus, he puts his hand on our shoulders, on the shoulders of the church he's, he's speaking to in order to encourage us, in order to slow down and focus on the good news that we have in Jesus. And he does this by addressing three groups. First, he looks at children, then at fathers and young men. And he speaks three words of encouragement. The first word of encouragement is this, you are forgiven. Second, you have relationship with God. And third, you are strong. Now, I want to just say this as we we jump in, just as a little aside before we get going in. Even though in our more literal translations of the verses that we've read and that we're going to look at now, there is the word uh, father and there's the word young men. Even though that's the case, it's true that in the Greek language, in this context, those words can be taken in an inclusive way to refer to both men and women. And I think that that's appropriate in this context. John's addressing all of us with these words. So let's look at what he says. Look with me at his word that he addresses first to children. You are forgiven. He says in verse 12 and 13, I'm writing to you, little children, to you, children. And we might ask, well, then who are these children? Is John addressing the kids' ministry? Is he saying, hey, uh, K through five groups, listen up? No, I don't think that's quite right. It's not quite right because back in chapter 2, verse 1, we've already seen the way that he addressed the whole church with that term of, of love and affection, little children. And I think here he's probably speaking again to the whole church. Not signaling out anyone, but talking in a general way, in a loving way to the whole community of followers of Jesus. Before he then goes on to speak to smaller subsets within that community of the fathers and the young men. So what's that mean? Well, all it means is that for us, this word is John speaking to all of us. He's got a word for all of us. And he tells us, Christ said, puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, you are forgiven for his namesake. Christ City, Jesus has forgiven your sins. Jesus has forgiven your greed, your selfishness, the angry outburst you had this morning before you turned on the link to join the service online. Jesus has forgiven your lust and your anger and your bitterness. Jesus has forgiven you. As you walk in the light, not covering your sin, not hiding it, but confessing it as John's instructed us to do, in chapter 1, verse 9, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses you from all your sin. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. And John says, your sins are forgiven. But notice that second portion. You zoom in on that, you see that? It says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. It's not for your name's sake, it's for his name's sake. What does that mean? Well, John is saying it's not because you are perfect that you are forgiven. It's not because you've managed to cut out all of the sin and all of the evil in your life that you are forgiven. It's not that you've got yourself together somehow, and then because of what you've done, you've been forgiven. No, it's the opposite. John is saying your forgiveness is because of what God has done for you as an act of grace and love in Jesus. 
God has forgiven your sins. Now, I'm tempted to define for myself, when I, when I look at a verse like this, I'm tempted to define that word forgiveness by the way that I sinfully want to forgive myself. Not just forgive myself, but, you know, me forgiving other people. Because when I've been hurt, and I know that I'm supposed to forgive someone, usually I, I kind of let that, that default narrative of forgiveness come into my mind. Okay, forgiving's just letting go. I'm going to let go, and I'm going to just kind of get some distance, but I'm going to hold on to a few different things. I'm going to forgive, but I'm going to hold on to my resentment and my bitterness. And I'm going to reserve the right to continue to bring up those things when they come to mind and feel angry and look with disdain at that person. Think, man, what a jerk. I can't believe they did that. I'm going to hold on to my right to hold them at arm's length from relationship with me. You know, I forgive them, but they're not coming close again. Or maybe I'll reserve the right to somehow punish them by speaking negatively about them or when I have the opportunity to put burdens on them to make them know that I, I haven't let them off the hook. They still owe me something. Friends, that isn't forgiveness. And praise God, it's not the way that he forgives you. So what is forgiveness then? Well, there's a great pastor who's got a wonderful way of explaining things named Tim Keller, and he writes this about forgiveness. His forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. Let me read that one more time. Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. But it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. What does that mean? Think about how monetary debts work. If a friend breaks my lamp, and if the lamp costs $50 to replace, then the act of lamp breaking incurs a debt of $50. If I let him pay for and replace the lamp, I get my lamp back and he's out $50. But if I forgive him for what he did, the debt does not somehow vanish into thin air. When I forgive him, I absorb the cost and payment for the lamp. Either I will pay the $50 to replace it, or I will lose the lighting in that room. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. Christ said, you need to know that God forgives you by paying your debt. It's finished the work of Jesus on the cross. God has provided a payment for your sin of infinite value, not just $50, but the blood of Jesus, God incarnate. And because God paid your sin debt once for all, you need to know that God doesn't hold all that you've done in the back of his mind and use it against you and bring it up again and again to remind you of it and to condemn you for it. God doesn't punish you ever again for the sin that you've done. He's punished Jesus. He's borne the weight of that debt. God doesn't hold against you the sin that you still struggle with or the sin that you will struggle with in the future that he knows about. God has forgiven all of your sin, past, present, and future through the payment of Jesus, his son. And because of that, you need to hear this promise of God that's for you in Jesus from Hebrews 10, verse 17. 
Hear this for you personally. God speaks to you. He says, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Let that sink in. Because you're forgiven, you are welcomed. You're fully accepted into intimate relationship with God. He doesn't hold you at arm's length. He runs to you and catches you up in his arms and embraces you with his love. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 John 3 verse 1. I'm going to read it right now. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And when God forgives you, he delights in you. He embraces you. He treats you the way the prophet Zephaniah spoke about in chapter 3 of his book. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And in Jesus, John wants you to know that this is true for you because he has forgiven your sins. So Christ City, we should ask though, why does John share these words with us at this point in this letter? What does he want us to know? What does he want us to do with this knowledge? Well, he shares it with us because he knows that being forgiven allows us to serve God without fear. You see, John knows that he's been calling us to some lofty things. And he knows that when he calls you to some lofty things, you can start to feel the weight of them and just feel afraid. I can never live up to to pleasing God. How can I ever find a way to, to, to live up to what he's called me to? You start to treat God maybe like you've treated that parent in your life who you could always try to please but never could quite win their approval. But that's wrong. Because the gospel begins with the approval of God. It starts with God loving you and forgiving you so that the soil of your life in relationship with him by the Spirit is this place of acceptance and love. So that now all of your efforts to obey him, they're this sacrifice of praise and worship and adoration for him. They're not done so that you can somehow earn his favor. You already have it. Now you serve and obey because you love him. Because he first loved you. Little children, you are forgiven. Be at peace. And the second group that John encourages in the church are the fathers. And he encourages them by reminding them something a little different. Reminding them that they have relationship with God. He says in verses 13 and 14, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, most likely the the fathers that John has in mind, they're actually the spiritual parents, both as masculine and feminine inclusive language in that word pateres in Greek. He's talking about the spiritually mature. So this means that he's addressing us now, I think, through the words of John here at Christ City Church, he's talking to mature Christians, those who've been walking with Jesus for a little while. And John has something to say to you. 
He says, you know him who's from the beginning. John just wants to remind us of the very heart of our salvation. It's reminding us that, yes, sin separates us from relationship with God. We read that in passages like Isaiah 59 verse 2. And he's reminding us that through Jesus, we come to know God. We come to be reconciled into relationship with him and to receive the fullness of the life that is in God and given to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about this in John 17 verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. You want to know what it is? You want to know what flourishing life? You want to know what the good life is? It's this. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. True flourishing life, the life you long for, is only found by knowing God through Jesus Christ, his son. And John wants us to remember, those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while, that this is what we have in Jesus. See, John's word for you, mature Christian, is that you have life that is truly life because you know God through Jesus, his son. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a little while, and you know this is true, you know it. This, this is your testimony. This is your story. With the eyes of faith, you've seen God in the face of Jesus, and you love him. You love him. I love the way that 1 Peter talks about this in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 1. There, Peter writes to the congregation, he says, Though you have not seen Jesus, not with your eyes, you've not seen him with your eyes, you've seen him with the eyes of faith. Though you've not seen him with your eyes, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Mature Christian, you've experienced that. You know it's true. You know what it's like to erupt with praise and adoration and worship as someone who knows God, just like the psalmist erupts in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9. How precious, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of your life and in your light do we see light mature christian you know god you know him but why does john feel the need to tell you that john feels the need to tell you this because he knows that as we grow in our Christian lives, we can begin to move on from loving Jesus. We can begin to let other things creep in and take that central place that belongs only to Jesus. John is the one, after all, who recorded the revelation of Jesus at the last book of the Bible. And Jesus had this word to say to the Ephesian church there in chapter 2, verse 4. The Ephesian church was this church that was known to be a mature church. 
A church that had done many good things in the name of Jesus, had a reputation for serving him. And yet Jesus speaks to them and he says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Mature Christian, as the pressures of life mount, as sufferings have increased, as your desires have grown and shifted, have you begun to move away from the love you had at first? Have you begun to forget the most precious thing of all, that you know God? You know him who is from the beginning. Let me encourage you to remember, to seek Jesus, to love him, to serve him, to delight in him as you did at first. And the third and final group that John stops to encourage here, they're the young men. John writes to them in a very straightforward way in verses 13 to 14. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. In verses 13 and 14, John addresses really the youths in Christ. Again, this male and female inclusive language. And he addresses them in this courageous, victorious, powerful way because he knows the dangers of spiritual timidity in our lives. He knows that it's easy to live this safe life. This protected life, rather than seeking God and risking for him in obedience and faith. So to you who have only been walking with Jesus for a short while here at Christ City Church, let me encourage you with John's words. John says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And now I know what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, wait a second, Brand, you don't know me. I'm not strong. I'm weak. My burdens overwhelm me. My anxieties run through me. I feel my insecurities deeply. I am weak. And I I hear you. But but if you respond that way, I think you misunderstand what John's saying. See, the victory and the power that John's talking about and that are in you, they're not yours. They belong to Jesus. Jesus. You aren't strong on your own, but the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. You aren't strong on your own. You haven't conquered the evil one on your own, but the spirit of Jesus who crushed Satan under his heel is at work in you. See, John writes to you, you are strong The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one because John knows what you're called to and what you've been empowered for even when you don't know it. God is at work in this world of death, bringing life. And John knows that his agents that he's working through are you. He's using you to bring that life into this world because of the victory of his son. John knows that life is working outward through you, that God's desires are for it to increase and overflow through you into your relationships, into your friendships, into your family. 
into your working relationships, into your neighborhoods, into your lives with your literal neighbors, and outward into the city to care for those around you. And he's calling you to live for him this rich, flourishing life in Jesus, empowered by his spirit. He wants you to get up, to step out boldly in faith. He wants you to work and to sweat and to labor in this world for him. Sounds like a lot, but you're empowered for it. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. If you're wondering where you can begin, let me say this. You might consider starting by changing some of the normalized and destructive habits that are in your life. And you can do it. You can do it because of the victory of Jesus that is at work in you. You might start with considering changing your habits of media consumption. See, social media, it's well-documented. By numerous secular and Christian sources, social media breeds destructive comparison and insecurity and anxiety. Binge entertainment is normal. Binge used to be a bad word, actually, and it's not anymore. Binge entertainment is normalized in our culture. It's acceptable, but it's destructive to our souls because it makes us lazy and selfish and withdrawn from others as we live our lives isolated from one another. And maybe you've tried changing your habits here before. I know that I've struggled with this and there have been times when I tried to change and I, and I wouldn't change. I couldn't get a handle on it. Maybe you've found that you keep falling into the same old ruts. But I want to ask you, have you made use of what John's already communicated in the letter? He's called you to confess, not to fight this battle privately, but to fight it with brothers and sisters around you and accountability, making yourself available to them so that they know what's happening in your private life. So they can encourage you and spur you on to victory and fruitfulness in Jesus. You see, we're not strong on our own. We're strong as we live together in the body of Christ that God has put us in. We're not meant to live isolated lives from one another. And as you cut some of these things out, you might be wondering, okay, that's great, Brent. That's a lot of negative stuff. But what do I fill my life with instead? Where do I go from there? Well, let me give you a couple things. There's a lot more, but let me suggest three. And just email me or give me a phone call. And let's go get a coffee or a talk or something about how this might look further. But the three things are these. Number one, friendship. Number two, diligence. And number three, giving for the sake of Jesus. Begin to fill your lives up with these things, starting with friendship. See, for a whole host of reasons, friendship has been eroded in our modern society. It's not what it used to be. And loneliness, I think, is a pandemic in our society that's worse than COVID. And I'm not saying that as somebody who thinks that COVID isn't a serious and terrible thing that's taking many lives in our world. So let me encourage you then to invest time building friendship. Prioritize real people in your life. Go on walks with them. Call them on the phone. Send them messages of encouragement. Begin to build into their lives. Begin to seek them out. They're probably lonely just like you are and could use the companionship and the encouragement. Second, I want to encourage you to build into diligence. Think laziness is another pandemic that's in our world today. And what's becoming rare are faithful, servant-hearted, 
God worshiping employees and students. So the way that you work can be an incredibly powerful witness for Jesus. Not working selfishly, not working for your own glory, not working out of laziness, but working out of worship as an act of worship for God. So let me encourage you to give yourself wholeheartedly to your studies and to your career as servants of Jesus. Practically what that means is let me encourage you to show up tomorrow with vigor and a willingness to work hard for the glory of Jesus at whatever you're doing. And the third way I want to encourage you positively to grow as a minister of life and light to the victory of Jesus is in your giving. I think by default in our society and in our lives, we consider our time, uh, our abilities or our talents, and the resources that God's given us, including our money. We consider all of those things as things that we have for ourselves. It's mine. But that's wrong. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. You are no longer your own. You belong in everything in your life to him. You're his. You're his. So let me encourage you to begin to use all that you have from him as an act of worship and service and glory for him. Serve him with energy and with faith, risking an obedience for his glory. You see, to the youths in Christ, let me encourage you, flourishing life in Jesus is worth dying for. The life that Jesus calls you to is the greatest adventure, the most meaningful and purposeful reality, meaningful life that you can have while on earth. Let me encourage you to be strong and courageous in him. You are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Be confident by the power of his spirit. Walk in obedience. You see, Christ said, Jesus is life. But life with Jesus can be hard. We're in need of encouragement. So in conclusion, let me just say this. Would you join with me in becoming a little more like John? Can we grow as a church in becoming a place where encouragement is normal? Can we grow as a church to to build an atmosphere of encouragement here at Christ City Church so that text messages of praise and encouragement where words that are simple and clear from the word of God are spoken freely to one another? I want to encourage you when we come off of of the sermon time and go back to the Zoom call, look around at who's there on the call. Consider who could you speak encouraging words to? Who do you think could use a reminder that Jesus loves them? That God is for them? That they've been forgiven? That the power of God by the Holy Spirit is at work in their life? Don't be afraid to be concrete and specific about the things that you see in their lives. Look for them. Say, hey, I want to encourage you that I saw God at work in your life in this way. Thank you. I see it. I praise God for it. I don't think that any of us encourage enough. We can grow in this, Christ City. Encouragement from Scripture powerfully builds and strengthens the church. So with that said, would you again hear the words of John for us this morning? You are forgiven. You know God. 
You are strong in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you as those that are in need of hearing the simple truths of your gospel again and again and again. We want to thank you in response. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that we live in relationship with you, accepted and delighted in. Father, thank you that the victory of Jesus empowers us. That we're not dead in sin. We are alive in Christ. Would you use us for our, would you use us for your glory in Vancouver this week? In Jesus' name, amen.